This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 21st, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor at the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, in past weeks, we've talked about the fact that many different approaches to preventing and treating COVID-19 are being considered or being tested. In some cases, they're being used without any testing. So where do they come from? What are the principles underlying their development and how confident are we in that knowledge? Let's look first at vaccination. What are the approaches being taken to produce effective vaccines? Well, let me go first on this one and talk about passive immunity. Lindsay, I'll leave you active vaccination. So Passive immunity refers to giving antibodies or antisera to people at risk of developing disease. They can be polyclonal antisera, and the one that we usually think about are antisera isolated from patients who've recovered from disease, or they can be antibodies produced in vitro. These are generally monoclonal antibodies, and they have the advantage of being able to be both scalable And because they all have the same structure, we can be confident that they're going to be reproducible. Now, passive immunity is not something that we think about all that commonly, but we do use it to protect against other viral infections. For example, if you're exposed to rabies, you'll receive rabies immune globulin, which can bind to virus which has entered early on and hopefully prevent further infection. And that's given at the same time that an inactive vaccine is given so that you can raise your own antibodies. So in the case of rabies and diseases like that, you're protected initially by the antibodies that are given to you and subsequently by the antibodies you raise yourself. And in a similar fashion, people have thought about antibodies not just to prevent disease, but also to treat disease. And we know there are case series out there of people being treated with convalescent sera from patients who've recovered, we don't really have enough experience yet to know whether or not these have an impact on disease. But this is certainly an approach that's been used in other infections, sometimes successfully. So perhaps this is going to be a way of both preventing and treating disease. I think, Eric, I think it's worth talking a bit more about the passive approaches before we get active. And that part of what underlies the approach to passive immunotherapy is that this virus is relatively conserved without a lot of genetic uh, mutation, despite its global spread. So when you have a conserved virus with conserved surface proteins, which is very different than HIV, which is highly diverse, that allows antibodies to be identified and then potentially utilized as therapeutic agents. And as Eric said, with rabies or with tetanus, there's tetanus immune globulin for RSV. There's an approach to prevent RSV infection in the neonates and the preterm babies. And in fact, with Ebola in 1976-77, one of the first things that was looked at with the teams investigating it was developing antisera as a potential countermeasure if anyone became ill on the, uh, the team. So this is an approach that goes back for decades or more than 100 years. And it's one that's being looked at uh, aggressively today using convalescent plasma as a potential therapeutic. But what's uneven about convalescent plasma is the amount of antibody that may be targeting the virus. Because as Eric said, 
each of us may develop an immune response that's a little bit different and that in some total may clear the infection, but whether or not there's an antibody or passive moiety that is highly active may vary between individuals. And that complicates the study of convalescent or passive immunity. Very different than if one develops broadly neutralizing antibodies or monoclonal antibodies from a pharmaceutical point of view, where a particular epitope, potentially the receptor binding domain, the RBD, that is often discussed, that one can raise plasma cells or B cells that can target this so that one can make high quantity of a monoclonal. And that is theoretically very attractive, but it needs empiric data to know if it really neutralizes the virus and has therapeutic benefit. Lindsay, what you said about the viral mutation rate and the relatively slow progression of change in this virus thus far applies equally to passive immunity and to active immunity. It's much more likely that the epitopes that are used for whatever vaccine gets developed are much more likely to be conserved in this virus that doesn't change all that much. Uh, We will see as the disease progresses if that remains true, but there isn't a reason to believe at this point that it's any different. So the relatively slow change in the virus makes it less likely that the epitopes that are important when you're inducing antibody responses are going to change significantly. In other words, it seems likely at this point in the epidemic that we should be able to generate antibodies that will neutralize a very large spectrum of viruses. And that's very encouraging. There are several approaches that people are taking to try to make antibodies. They fall into sort of a couple categories. One is inactivated virus or components of the virus, like purified proteins. That's the sort of traditional vaccine that people have used for other diseases. The other is to use a trick to make the host cells produce the viral antigens. And that can be done in two ways, either using DNA constructs, which direct the host to produce whatever that viral antigen is and produce it over time. Or more recently, RNAs or modified RNA molecules that similarly get into host cells and direct the development of these antigens to which you can subsequently make antibodies. Both of those latter two approaches, DNA vaccines and RNA vaccines, are very attractive because you can start them early. And the very earliest vaccine trials right now are with an RNA-based vaccine. We don't really have a lot of examples of successful vaccination using these approaches, yet it remains a possibility. I should add one other approach. I said two, but there are actually three. The third is to engineer the antigens that you want to make antibody into a living vector. For example, an adenovirus, which can infect a host, it can produce those. um, By themselves, those vectors are either completely or only mildly pathogenic so that they can be cleared, yet they kind of boost the immune response to the antigen that they're carrying. I mean, I think, Eric, you highlight a key set of principles in vaccine development. First is what is the antigen or the epitope of interest? That needs to be conserved across the virus that's being transmitted in the community. And the other is how do you deliver it 
in a format that stimulates a robust protective immune response. And there are different ways to stimulate that immune response, as you suggested. And then one can give combinations of these approaches, prime boost strategies, if one wants to manipulate the immune response in that way. And these strategies are utilized for different types of vaccines that are being developed. But what underlies this is that the circulating virus is conserved. And as we suggested already, that seems to be the case, but that is something we all will be watching closely, both from a monoclonal antibody, a vaccine development, and also a diagnostic standpoint. As long as the virus stays relatively conserved with limited mutation, then these different strategies and diagnostics that we've been talking about should continue to hold true in terms of the approach. If the virus is stable, are we sure that vaccination is going to be protective? Ah, that's a great question, Steve. Uh, No, we're not sure. The truth is that the antibody responses to the common coronaviruses, the alpha coronaviruses, which cause URIs, are not that great and don't protect for very long, at least. The evidence for beta coronaviruses like SARS and MERS is better that there are antibody responses which are persistent over time. Are they protective against infection? Animal models suggest that they probably are, but that really remains to be seen. As of today, we have no idea if people who are naturally infected can get infected again. There are several case reports of people who've had disease returning with worsened disease. So far, it's not clear that any of these are reinfections. They may simply be relapsing of what's happened before. And there may always be a small number of people who do not have persistent protection. But thus far, we don't know from natural infection if we get protective immunity. And I think that's sort of a key point is that looking at the natural experiment, which is individuals who get infected and recover, suggests that the immune response is active against this virus, clears infection. Whether that's durable remains to be seen, and whether that can be elicited through vaccine strategies remains to be seen. In addition, there is a concern with vaccine strategies, which is this concept of ADE or antibody-dependent enhancement, which is unclear if that's relevant with coronavirus vaccine development. However, it is been identified with other viruses such as dengue and has complicated vaccine development in that field. And the development of a coronavirus or a SARS-2 COVID-19 vaccine will need to address this concern And there's active investigations to better define it to see if it's a real issue and to also determine if immune responses can be elicited that are likely to be protective. Now, I know that someone is going to write in if we fail to mention the fact that there are other mechanisms of protection that could be possible. It's possible that some of these will elicit cell-mediated immune reactions, which themselves may be protective we know very little about how important these are or whether or not they could protect at this point. So I I think that's quite speculative. That's, Eric, in part what I was getting at before in that different individuals who clear infections, some may have high titer neutralizing antibody, some may not. 
yet they clear infection, suggesting that clearance of active infection may actually leverage the breadth of the immune responses that we'll need to better define in understanding the pathogenesis of infection with SARS-CoV-2, and therefore the immune responses that are likely to be protective. Shifting a bit, what about antiviral drugs? What are the strategies that underlie development in that area? I think there are a couple of different strategies. You could separate them into things which target the virus and things which target the host response to the virus. And now I'm going to even subcategorize even further. There are direct acting antivirals which block one of the essential proteins of the virus. The most common among the candidates that are out there most inhibit the viral polymerase, which is required for it to copy its RNA and to make new genomes and make more virus. Um, although there are strategies to inhibit other proteins like the protease. Then there are strategies to interfere with host factors that are necessary for viral replication. For example, using lysosomotropic agents to disrupt the cellular pathways that are required for viral entry and for viral assembly and budding. It's easiest to understand the first category because we have many examples of antivirals that target an essential viral process. It's conceivable that the second category might work as well, but we have considerably less experience looking at those. The second broad category of things though, don't target the virus at all. They target us, they target the host, and they target host immunity and host inflammation. Again, I'm gonna give two categories here. One category are things which modulate the host response in a way that might protect against infection early on. And those are things that could boost innate immune responses early after infection. What's been discussed mostly are vaccines that are directed against other pathogens, which have nonspecific effects on innate immunity. Now, those are interesting and they're available off the shelf. The major concern, however, is that host inflammation plays a big role in the pathogenesis of the disease. And people who develop ARDS largely probably have over-exuberant immune responses. And so boosting those may have negative effects. It's hard to know. The other class then of drugs are those that are directed against that late stage of inflammation in the host. If we were to block inflammation, and I'm using that word very generally, by using a number of different agents, including corticosteroids, including antibodies against cytokines, um, including some protein kinase inhibitors that inhibit inflammatory signaling intracellularly, then perhaps we could limit the amount of damage that's done ultimately. The risk of those is that you might enhance viral replication, which might have negative effects. I'm talking a lot about things we don't know much about, though. Which is what many of us have been talking about for three months as we all learn about this coronavirus. But I think, Eric, as I think about it, similar to you, but a little bit different, there's the direct viral pathogenesis or complications, and then the host complications it incites. And antivirals that attack the virus are always attractive as we think about antibacterials that attack bacteria, is can we attack the organism that's causing 
the pathogenesis directly. And you know, with hepatitis C, we saw with the interferon or host augmentation strategies, a weak response that we as society thought was better than nothing, but not very impressive. And when society or the community developed DAAs or directly acting antiviral agents, it changed how we thought about hepatitis C and its treatment. I am hopeful and optimistic that direct antiviral agents will emerge that have activity against SARS-CoV-2. And that's an area with lots of studies going on. But the ability to properly clinically phenotype the illness that's being targeted limits some of the ability to target these therapies in a highly orchestrated manner. You've talked about a dozen potential paths to preventive and treatment answers. And you say that there are a number of studies in progress. Two questions. Is funding adequate? Are those studies robust? And will they give us good answers? And a more crystal ball kind of question, what kind of timeline do you see for these various strategies? I'll answer the second question first. I think none of them will be available next week. Our big hope is that something off the shelf will help. And the things that are available off the shelf are some approved drugs for repurposing. There are also drugs that are in late clinical trials or have been approved in other countries. And the path to developing those would be rather short. And the limitation in those cases may be just producing enough of the drug to use if they really did work. Vaccines, though, are going to take a while. And the thing about vaccines, vaccines to prevent disease, is that they're given to healthy people. And in order to know that they're safe, you have to give them to a lot of people. And of course, you want to measure whether or not they work. And that will take a while because we have to have people who are exposed to infection. In fact, that may be a lot slower as the outbreak wanes and we have fewer people exposed. That will mean it will take a longer time to accumulate enough patients who do develop disease who are getting the tested vaccines. But the big holdup is safety. A lot of people have to get this before we'll be comfortable giving it out widely. As far as budget goes, there has been a lot of money devoted to COVID-19, and I think it's appropriate. Think about the amount of economic damage this is doing. It's hard to imagine something that's too expensive to test right now. I think the limitation isn't going to be money. It's going to be logistics. It's going to be finding the researchers and finding enough patients to do the clinical trials correctly. The speed issue is such an important challenge. And as we see these outbreaks over the last few decades with a series of Ebola outbreaks, a series of influenza outbreaks, the coronavirus outbreaks, and now SARS-CoV-2, are we as a community really preparing ourselves to move as quickly as possible to respond to these events when they occur? It means we have to understand when the event is occurring with the first case, a community in another country or beyond a country. How do we decide that an outbreak is occurring that warrants a rapid response? And as we're learning with SARS-CoV-2, these respiratory viruses spread very quickly. And we as a community have to develop the infrastructure to respond as quickly which includes defining the epidemiology, pathogenesis, and then developing the countermeasures. And vaccines were some of the easiest to initiate development because once the sequence was available in early January, then antigens or inserts 
were developed and constructs created. But as Eric, you point out, they have to be manufactured, they have to be tested in preclinical models, then the phase one, first immunogenicity and safety, while you're sorting out manufacturing to modest scale for the efficacy trials that have to be done in a context where transmission is going on, which is why it often takes at least a year or two to develop a vaccine, even though you can know what the insert should be within days of the sequence being available, which is a different challenge than for therapeutic agents, particularly repurposed therapeutic agents, where one can try them almost immediately in ill patients to see if there is a beneficial effect. But again, we have to have studies that are designed almost before the event occurs so that randomized trials can be done immediately to determine what does or doesn't work, as was done in China in early January to early February with lopinavir ritonavir, where one is prepositioned to do an RCT, a randomized clinical trial, to determine if a repurposed agent works while one is developing targeted agents. But I think funding has not been the big barrier in this event. I think it's been more the community speed to do properly controlled trials to know what does work. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.